0: You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. Today we bring you a message titled Ropes of Gold that former MBI president George Sweeting presented at MBI Founders Week in 1984. George Sweeting is a pastor, author, and evangelist who served as MBI's 6th president from 1971 to 1987. Now, here is George Sweeting on Today in the Word radio.
1: I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Would you do that? Let's look at chapter 9 of the book of Acts, verses 20 through 25. In the year 1783, a pastor by the name of William Carey sensed the call to go as a missionary to the land of India. He pastored a Baptist church in England, but he sensed the call to go to India and translate the word of God into the language of the Indian people. When he shared his burden with the local ministerium, the moderator turned to young Carey and said, Carey, sit down. When God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help and without my help. And they tried to rebuke this young pastor. But William Carey would not be deterred. He sensed God's call. He announced that he was going, and he made thorough preparation. In 1793, 10 years later, he, with his wife and his family, left for India to begin the modern missionary movement. Before he left for India, he turned to the people of his church, and this is what he said. I will go down into the earth and mine precious souls, but you at home must hold the ropes. For 44 years, William Carey served in India. He faced horrendous obstacles. While in India, he founded a church, he established a school, he built a publishing house, he printed back in that day over 200,000 copies of the Bible, and he put portions of the Word of God into 40 different dialects. When asked the secret of his success, he said, I can plod. I can persevere at any given effort. William Carey asked the people of the church to pray and hold the ropes on his behalf. Here in Acts chapter 9, you have the account of the apostle Paul fleeing from the city of Damascus. Beginning in verse 20, it says, And straightway he, Paul, preached Christ in the synagogue, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ, very Messiah." And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying away was known as Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. This passage tells us about the days following the conversion of this young man. You recall how the chapter begins, how he had official letters to Damascus to bind the Christians at Damascus. And as he traveled, there was a light that broke upon him. Recognizing that this wasn't natural, but supernatural, he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. For the first time, Saul from Tarsus recognized that Jesus from Nazareth was the Lord of glory, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when he heard that voice saying, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest, immediately he said in verse 6, what wilt thou have me to do? In that marvelous conversion experience, he was blinded by this dazzling light. In verse 18, his sight was restored. In verse 20, he is in Damascus, and he preached Christ in Damascus as the Son of God. In verse 21, all were amazed. Now, that was an understatement. They were totally speechless that here a young man who was coming to persecute the Christians was now preaching Christ. In verse 23, they took counsel to kill him. They said, we don't know what's happened, but something has happened, and we're going to kill him. And in verse 24, they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And in verse 25, some disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. Can you see the picture? It's nighttime in the city of Damascus. I see a group of men going along the Damascus wall, and one is carrying a basket, and the other has a coil of rope. I can see them ascend the wall to a window on the wall and then they tie that rope to the basket and then they help a young man into the basket and then they gradually let that basket down, down, down until it touches the ground with a thud. And this young man steps out, waves to his newfound friends and is swallowed up in the blackness of the Damascus night. This is the escape of Saul from the city of Damascus. I want to think about a number of things as I look at this 25th verse. First of all, think about the rope holders. Who were they? Think about the rope holders. What were their names? Where are their credits? Probably Ananias was one of those disciples who held the ropes that night, but we're not told that. In fact, these men were unknown to the scripture, and unknown to church history. And these rope holders, that dark, difficult night in Damascus, are known only to God. And I started to think about rope holders. You know, the Lord had something to say about it. In Matthew 6, he said, "'Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of men, because if you do, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven.'" God seems to prefer modest, humble people who serve even though their names aren't listed, unknown rope holders. And I started to think about rope holders, rope holders. Who are the rope holders today? I thought about parents. Parents are rope holders. I'm reminded back in Exodus 1 how the children of Israel multiplied so rapidly that the king of Egypt was fearful and he said, let's kill all the baby boys. But there was a mother of the house of Levi who gave birth to a little baby who was a beautiful baby, the scripture says. And when she could keep him no longer, Exodus 2, 3 says, she took for him an ark, a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags by the riverbank. Jochebed placed her little baby In a basket. And then she held the ropes for her precious little child. How did she do that? Well, in verse 4, his sister stood afar off to see what would be done with the little baby. And then Pharaoh's daughter came along. Verse 7 Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. So Jochebed had her little precious child in her basket. She was holding the ropes for that baby. She had her daughter placed there to go to Pharaoh's daughter. And she came to nurse her very own child. And according to verse 9, she even got paid for nursing her child. And I thought about parents who are rope holders. Parents are rope holders. I pay tribute to a wonderful mother and father who are rope holders for me and my two brothers who are pastors and three sisters. We grew up in a little town in hailed in New Jersey, a little town, not much get up and go about the town. In fact, if you did get up, be no place to go. It was one of those little towns that if you'd plug in your electric razor, the street lights would dim. Uh, it was a little town. My folks were the first to come to Christ in their family and the only ones to come to Christ. Father was a serious, determined Scotsman who based his life on principles. He used to always say, can't isn't in your vocabulary. Knock the T off of can't and make it can. And then he would quote Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was a layman. He taught a Bible class, played an instrument in rescue missions, He was a bricklayer by trade. He had a number of men who worked under him, and he'd push them hard. He believed in an honest day's work. And they would say, Scotty, your work is too hard. Didn't you know that Rome wasn't built in a day? And he'd say, yes, I know, but I wasn't foreman on that job. (laughs) And I am very grateful to God for parents who are rope holders, a good father and a saintly mother. As far as my mother was concerned, no calling in the world came anywhere near serving the Lord as a pastor, and she, I'm sure, prayed us into the ministry. At times, dangers lurked about my life and the lives of my brothers, but she held the ropes. It seemed like enemies were at the gates of our soul, but she prayed for us and prayed for us until she heard the thud of the basket hitting ground, rope holders rope holders. Pastors are rope holders. You're rope holders. There are a lot of young people in your church, young fellows and girls, and they'll go into the ministry because you care, because you're praying for them, because you're encouraging them. You're rope holders. The pastor of the church where I grew up is here tonight. He's been pastor there for 59 years and still going strong. It's a large church in Hawthorne, New Jersey. He started it when he was 20 years of age, and he's going at it, and he's going to speak tomorrow. He was a role model for me and hundreds of others. Pastors are rope holders. I had a Sunday school teacher who was the most unforgettable Sunday school teacher I ever had. His name was John Rowan. Pastor Braunin, of course, knew him so well. John didn't have the benefits of an academic education, but he knew the Bible and he loved people, and he had a class of 100 young men. Now, I challenge you to have a class of 100 young men year after year and teach them the Word of God and do it effectively like John Rowe did. He prayed for us. He had a little loose-leaf notebook. Our names were listed there. He knew our likes and dislikes. He'd bring us to New York City. He'd have us lead the singing. He'd have us preach, give our testimony, be on a street corner meeting— his education I said was limited. He never could say Judas Iscariot. He used to always say Judas is a carrot. <laughs> and I'll never forget when he would read scripture though he knew the scriptures, when he would read it he'd come to a hard word, he'd stop, he'd talk a little bit and then he'd start on the other side. <laughs> but but Sunday school teachers are rope holders. Sunday school teachers are rope holders. I wouldn't be surprised if many of you are here because of a Sunday school teacher, a man or woman, who are rope holders on your behalf. We hold the ropes by encouraging others. We hold the ropes by feeding the Word of God. We hold the ropes by warning them from danger. Unknown disciples were rope holders for this brand new Christian by the name of Saul. In Joshua chapter 2, we have the story of Rahab, the harlot, who was a rope holder. You remember how Joshua sent two spies into Jericho. The king heard about it, and he sent Rahab. He sent to Rahab and said, Give up these spies. And Rahab protected the spies. She hid them because she recognized that the God of Israel was the true God. And so in Joshua, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Then she let them down by a cord, by a rope, through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and dwelt she dwelt upon the wall. Now, the deeds of the rope-holding of Rahab were so important to God that she's listed in Hebrews, chapter 11. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Her rope holding placed her in God's who's who. But not only that, God so approved of her rope holding that Rahab is listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. It says in verse 5, And Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. Rope-holding. Rope-holding is important to God. Rahab was a rope-holder. Yes, holding the ropes is important to the Lord. Jochebed had Moses in her basket and held the ropes for him as the unknown disciples held the ropes for Saul that marvelous night when he escaped the darkness and the difficulty of Damascus. But secondly, I noticed something else according to verse 25. They held the ropes by night. They held the ropes by night. Notice verse 25. Then the disciples took him by night. Took him by night. Most things are more difficult by night. It was nighttime chronologically. It was nighttime experientially. Had these disciples been captured that night, they would have paid for it with their blood. They were rope holders by night. And I'm thinking of the theme that Pastor Stoll has been on, keeping on, keeping on, holding the ropes through difficult days. Anyone can serve the Lord when the sky's blue and when the wallet's bulging and when you have a job. And when you feel well, when the body's strong, and when the soft breezes blow, anyone can hold the ropes by day. But these disciples were rope holders by night. Peter was a rope holder by day. Remember when the Lord performed the miracles, he was there. When the Lord fed the thousands, he was there. He was a rope holder by day. But then the darkness moved in, and around the fire, he said, I don't know him. Three times, he said, I don't know him. When the darkness moved in, he did not hold the ropes by night. Abraham held the ropes by night. He was burdened for Sodom. He said, Lord, this city of Sodom is a wicked city, but, Lord, maybe there are 50 righteous. Will you not spare this city for 50 righteous? He said, Lord, maybe there are 40, maybe there are 30, maybe there are 20. He said, Lord, for 10. He thought if Lot and his wife and his children and their mates were one, there would at least be 10. And for the sake of 10, God would not judge Sodom. And so he's holding the ropes for Sodom. He said, Lord, spare Sodom. But they couldn't even find 10. Rope holders are needed by night. Rope holders are needed when it's tough in the church, when things go wrong, when everyone seems to be against you. Rope holders are needed in the dark hour, when secularism seems to move in and take over. Rope holders are needed in our nation. When John Huss was about to be burned at the stake for his faith, they said, Give up, recant. And he said, What I have taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood and he was burned at the stake. Dante, who wrote Dante's Inferno, said the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who in the hour of crisis preserve their neutrality. Yes, I think Francis Schaeffer is right. We are living in the post-Christian era, and we need rope holders by night. Sometimes in the work of education, it's not all easy. I can think of back... Some years ago when I passed through a very difficult experience and I I felt like resigning. People had falsely accused us. They had read into things, things that weren't there. May I give you a suggestion? Never resign impulsively. If you're going to resign, do it after careful thought and prayerful thought and never carry your resignation in your pocket. If a person carries it in their pocket, I'd just soon have it. It's a mistake to carry it around. Never do it carelessly. Never do it impulsively. I remember when I was going through a very trying time, and a trustee looked at me and he knew I was having a hard time. He said, George, how do you feel? I said, Oh, I feel fine. I said, I sleep like a baby, sleep for an hour, wake up and cry for an hour. (laughs) We all have times like that, don't we? All of us do. What Pastor Stoll said is right. Pressure produces. It produces patience. It produces completeness. And the Lord is working with us. And he is a divine potter. And he wants us to be rope holders in the darkness. Paul, writing in Ephesians 6, says, "...we wrestle not against flesh and blood people, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness." against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Enoch, in a dark age, dared to be singular and walk with God. Daniel, in a strange land, in a dark hour, purposed not to touch the king's wine, but to be pure and to live a clean life. Esther held the ropes for her people in spite of the attacks of Haman. She held the ropes at night. Samuel Rutherford, an old Scot who was imprisoned in Aberdeen, Scotland, on one occasion said, Lord, if there were a broad hell between me and thee, and I could not get at thee except wading through it all, I would wade through it all that I might embrace thee and call thee mine. Do we have that kind of staying power? Do we have that kind of perseverance? Do we have that kind of commitment? Mrs. Jonathan Goforth said, the greatest hardship of the missionary's life is not the food he eats, not the house he lives in, it's not the climate, it's not the lack of modern conveniences. The greatest hardship of the missionary's life, the thing that drives many to defeat, is the combat against the powers of darkness. If the missionary is left without sufficient aid and prayer, the missionary will fail When we heard the call of God, it came in so clear and crystal-like. Dr. Edmund used to say, don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. We need to look back at that day when he called us and be rope-holders by night. Rope-holding speaks of faithfulness. Rope-holding speaks of dependability. Rope-holding speaks of staying power. Rope-holding speaks of consistency we sing, great is thy faithfulness. Oh, he's faithful. God is faithful, faithful in the past. He's faithful today. He's going to be faithful tomorrow. We need to reflect that attribute of God. God acts that way because he is that way. He is faithful. There's no shadow of turning with him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When he was on the cross, they said, come down. They mocked him. They wrote the King of the Jews. They put a thorn crown on his brow. They took a stick as a scepter and thrust it into his fingers. And they said, Come down and save thyself. It's human to come down, it's divine to stay there. And all around, I see people coming down, coming down, feeling like quitting. It's human to quit. It's human to come down. It's divine to stay there. They were rope holders by night. They were rope holders when it seemed like everything was against them. They held the ropes by night. Thirdly, they held the ropes till the basket touched ground. I asked myself, why should we hold the ropes anyway? I think there are at least two reasons. One, you may be the only one holding the rope, there are some people that you will reach that no one else will reach. There are some people you will encourage for the ministry, no one else will encourage. There are some people you can touch for God's glory, no one else can touch. You may be the only one holding the ropes. I was conducting an evangelistic campaign in Edinburgh, Scotland. I heard that in the nursing home, the Beulah Nursing Home, which was run by the Baptist denomination there, was a lady, the lady who led my mother to Christ, her name Jessie Kaye. She was very elderly. She was a faithful member of the Wishaw Baptist Church, so I went to see her. And I introduced myself. She knew about me because my mother had written. I shared concerning my gratitude that she took the time, that she cared, that she prayed, that she sacrificed, that she encouraged my mother to follow the Lord in baptism, that she worked with her so that she would grow in the things of God because she had no encouragement from her parents, no encouragement from her family. But there was a rope holder, and that rope holder's name was Jesse Kay. And I said, Jesse, I've come Just to say thank you for myself, for my brothers and sisters, for all that you've meant to our family because you cared, because you prayed, because you were the role model, because you had her in your basket and you held the ropes and you held the ropes for her. And if you hadn't done it, I wonder who would have done it. You may be the only one holding the rope for some individual. There's another reason why... You should hold the ropes till the basket touches ground And that is that your basket may be just about ready to touch ground The disciples didn't let go until they heard the thud of the basket Matthew 7 says ask and it shall be given Matthew 7 says seek and you shall find Knock and it shall be opened unto you I believe that speaks about perseverance I believe that speaks about keeping on I believe that speaks about being steadfast and faithful, reflecting that attribute of God. Some years ago, I was ministering in Levittown, Long Island. I had the joy of leading a woman to Christ during that evangelistic meeting. And I learned afterward that her husband was very much opposed to her profession of faith. In fact, it became nearly unbearable for her to live with him, but she stayed with him. She stuck it out. She suffered physical abuse from her husband. I came back to that church some years later for a one-night service, and I met her. And she said, oh, Pastor Sweetie, I have good news, good news. My husband's been converted. He knows Christ. He's been saved. And I said, oh, I'd love to talk to him. And after the service at a fellowship time, and we were sipping coffee and eating some coffee cake, and I met him. We wandered off to a corner and I said, "Uh, Joe, can I ask you a question? I said, were you as tough as I heard? Were you as rough as I heard? As crude as I heard? As rude as I heard? Did you actually take out your, your animosity on your wife physically so she suffered? He hung his head. He said, yes, that's true. I was that bad, that ugly, that mean, but I'm glad she didn't quit. She had every reason to leave me, but I'm glad she didn't leave me. I'm glad she did what you said. She held the ropes till she heard the thud of the basket. And it could well be that during this pastor's conference, your basket will touch ground. It could be that that prayer will be answered. It could be that the beginning of the solution will be seen. I have four sons. I love them dearly. Three have walked with the Lord over the years. One boy who has made a profession of faith hasn't walked with the Lord, and each year we'd start the year praying that he'd really walk with the Lord, that he'd commit himself to Christ. And as we began 1983, Don and his wife and Hilda and I prayed for our oldest son, even though we were close and he was a good son in many ways, but he was living for self and for things, and he wasn't walking with the Lord. And then in November of 1983, God spoke to him through a number of circumstances, primarily through his little children and the prayers of his parents and the love of friends. But he's committed himself to the Lord, and now he's seeking to please him. He's leading a Bible study, and God has worked miraculously in his life. The basket touched ground. Our prayer has been answered, and we believe it's going to continue to be fruitful in the years ahead. Keep holding the ropes till you hear the thud of the basket. But fourthly, who was in their basket? Fourth, who was in their basket? Well, you say, I know who was in the basket. A young man, a brand new Christian by the name of Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. But I say, who was Saul? Who was Saul? They didn't know that this Saul would become a preacher of the gospel. They didn't know that he would become a missionary to the Gentiles. They didn't dream that this Saul would write 13 books that we'd study and read and memorize and teach and preach. They didn't know who was in their basket. You don't know the potential of the boys and girls in your basket. You can't imagine the potential of the men and women at your disposal for the glory of God. Oh, who's in your basket? I think in the Gospel of John 6, how Jesus was teaching a great crowd. And they had waited long, and the crowd was hungry, and someone said, we don't have enough money to feed this crowd. And then in verse 9, someone said, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Now, I've heard some Sunday school teachers teach this, like... uh, Like he had huge loaves and big tuna, you know. (laughs) But uh, that's not the way it is. He was a little boy and he had five little biscuits and he had two small fishes, and someone said, What are they among so many? And then verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were sitting down and likewise of the fishes as much as they wanted until their needs were met. They were all fed and they were all filled and they were all satisfied. And when that was done, verse 12 says, there were fragments that remained to fill 10 baskets full. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. He loves to take the little things. He loves to take us as we are. He loves to take us with all of our shortcomings. God's interested in our availability. Oh, he's interested in ability. But more than that, he's interested in our availability. When God made man, he didn't use silver. And he didn't use diamonds or rubies or gold or uranium. Do you know what he used? Dirt used dirt when God made man. Humanity comes from the word humus, and that means in the dictionary decayed vegetable matter. Whenever you get feeling too big for your position, just remember decayed vegetable matter. God loves to take us as we are with all of our warts and all of our failures and all of our shortcomings. When the Lord built the tabernacle, he didn't use marble boards and badger skins. That's what he used, boards and badger skins. D.L. Moody, as a boy, appeared to be somewhat hopeless. They said he articulated so poorly that he could say Mesopotamian one syllable. Uh, I don't know how you could do that. But Edward Kimball, his Sunday school teacher, had him in his basket. One day he went to the place where he worked on a Saturday afternoon, and as he got to the place of employment, he lost his nerve, walked by, went a few lengths, and then turned around. And the Lord gave him the strength to go into that store and back into the rear section of that store. And there he opened the Gospel of John and he said to young D.L. Moody, do you know Jesus as your Savior? He said, no. He said, would you like to? He said, yes. And he read John three sixteen and a few related verses and gently led that teenage boy to faith in Jesus Christ. Edward Kimball said he knew so little. He said in the Sunday school class, I'd be speaking about a chapter in the New Testament. He'd be looking in the book of Genesis for it. When he applied for membership, they turned him down because they said he just didn't know much. He went to church Christmas and Easter. Edward Kimball really didn't know who was in his basket. But Edward Kimball was a rope holder. Moody was in his basket, and the other boys were in that basket. And he prayed for them and lived before them. He was a role model for them. And then he led them to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'd like to ask tonight... On this first night of the pastor's conference, who's in your basket, pastor? Youth pastor? What about all those young people in your basket? Christian worker? Layman? What about all those friends in your basket? Are you a rope holder? Are you a rope holder when it's dark, when it's tough, when it's nighttime? Will you ask the Lord to help you to end well? My predecessor here, Dr. Colbertson, used to once in a while turn to the young people and say, make sure you end well. So many don't end well. They get on a detour. And either because of things or immorality, they don't end well. We ask the Lord to help you to end well. What Pastor Stoll was speaking about, will you keep on keeping on? Will you say, Lord, increase my faithfulness? Maybe you need to get a new grip on the rope. I think that's what Paul was saying when he said, stir up the gift that's in you. You see, a fire naturally goes out. Fight the fading flame. You have to fight the fading flame. We're to resist the devil. One chapel, Alan Redpath was speaking And he ended his chapel talk, and he said, K-O-K-T-D. And he turned to walk away, and he said, oh, you're wondering what that means, K-O-K-T-D. He said, that means keep on kicking the devil. Well, resist the devil. You have to resist the devil. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Fight the good fight. It's a good fight. It's not a bad fight. It's a good fight. Fight the good fight. Say, Lord, I'll be a rope holder. I'll be a rope holder by night. I'll be a rope holder till the basket touches ground. I want to end well. I want to say I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course.
0: You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message titled Ropes of Gold that former MBI president George Sweeting presented at MBI Founders Week 1984. George Sweeting is a pastor, author, and evangelist who served as MBI's sixth president, from 1971 to 1987. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at MoodyAudio.com. Founders Week gets underway tomorrow at Moody Bible Institute, and we're excited to present live coverage of the Evening General Sessions, Tuesday through Friday nights this week, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time, 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll hear from David Platt, Rodney Maiden, Priscilla Shirer, and close our Founders Week this Friday evening with a message from MBI President Dr. Mark Job. So be sure to join us for Founders Week 2021 by tuning in to your local Moody radio station or going to foundersweek.com. That's foundersweek.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.